Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Caged and Presents Coppola Connections, as ever brought to you by the Breadcrumbs Collective and hosted by me, Petros Hatsilavus. You join us for episode 38, where I'll be talking about Never Say Never Again from 1983. If you are new to this here podcast, what we do over here is we watch every single film in the collective Coppola family filmography to determine are they the greatest film family of all time? If you're a James Bond fan, you may be thinking, whoa, 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 how is this related to the Coppola family? Like many people do when I send them the list for the films that need to be covered on this show. Well, Coppola connection for this episode, and we get into it in this episode, is Jack Schwartzman, the father to both Robert, um, Jason, Stephanie, and uh, Jonathan Schwartzman. So yeah, he's uh, he's he, he, and and his film company is called Talia Films. So I I think we can all see there's enough connection there. My guests for this episode are the fantastic Scott and Cam from the Spy Hards podcast. And as always, we spoil this film. We spoil this film bloody rotten. What it's ne- a nearly forty year old film? Yeah, we talk about all of it. Um. And uh, if you're a James Bond fan, you listen to this for your first time listening. I know nothing about James Bond, so this probably ain't your deep dive you're after. <laughs> With all that said, all that's left to do is to never say never again. 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 As we make some Coppola connections.
This week, we get our exploding pen and gadget-loaded car together to talk about the ultimate international man of mystery, 007 himself, James Bond. In Irvin Kirshner's 1983 spy film, Never Say Never Again, starring Sean Connery, Kim Basinger, Klaus Maria Brandauer, and Max von Sydow, with a screenplay by Lorenzo Semple Jr., based on the novel by Ian Fleming Thunderball. The film's producer and this week's Coppola connection is Jack Schwartzman and his production company, named after his wife, Natalia Films. As a Bond novice, I needed a little bit of help for this episode, so there was only two people I could think of. Special agents joining me for this chat is Scott Hardy and Cam Smith from the amazing Spy Hards podcast. How are you guys? Well, firstly, I take umbrage with being called an expert in anything, really, because uh, I, I can't, uh, can't attest to that. But no, we are very well. Thank you for having us. I am, of course, Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, as I'm known on Spy Hards, but Cam Smith is just fine. Um, I thought I was here to do the Rainmaker. Uh, I'm a little confused. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. There must have been some crossed wires. Yeah, John Grisham, Ian Fleming, they do get confused from time to time. <laughs> I also, it's it's probably a good time to mention that Kevin McClory is uh, responsible for all of this, and if we say anything otherwise, his estate will sue us. Okay, okay, so yeah, is he uh, okay? I do. Uh, I'm worried now. I'm worried. I feel like the there's a there, there's a shark after me as we speak. There's a tracking beacon been put on me in my shed at the back of my garden. Um, so before we get on with this chat, guys, tell us a little bit about the podcast. What is it you do over at Spyhards? Well, the, the sort of the idea is in the name, but basically every week we look at a spy movie. Now, we don't just look at James Bond. We do that once every couple of months, uh-huh. but we really dive into the back catalogue of spy films going all the way back to the 1920s. I think our earliest film on our list is on a mission to find the best spy movies of all time and put them on a list. Nice. Yes, it's called The Knock List, which we stole from the first Mission Impossible yeah. film. <laughs> and um, We've taken the uh, the letters NOC and created the tortured acronym Need to See Official Classics. Um, it's a real thinker, but ultimately, at the end of every episode, we like to look at a movie and just try to determine if it belongs on what we call like the the pantheon of all time great spy films. And we're essentially trying to create a list of not just like the critics' favorites of spy movies, uh-huh. but the ones that you would give that list to people and be like, here you go, all killer, no filler. You're going to understand the spy genre if you watch these movies. And they can represent all the different types from the, you know, John le Carre adaptations, like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, like a real, you know, critical favorite there, to something like Spy Kids, which is trying to look at the spy genre through like a very family-friendly way and trying to bring something new to it. So we're not snobby, but we sometimes watch snobby films. Yeah, I'm, try- I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's any crossover in, apart from this film in regards to the extended Coppola family. I'm trying to think if Cage has done a, a spy film at all. I guess the closest would be G-Force about the spy uh, guinea pigs, the Disney film where he plays a evil mole. G-Force? Sure um, looking at me both blank. <laughs> There's that. Um, I think he also did one called 
ooh, don't quote me on this. I think it might be Dying of the Light or something. Like he did one in the last like 15 years or so that is spy related, I believe. And a lot of people will also make an argument that The Rock is like a retired James Bond. And so there's always that. <laughs> but there, I mean, there's so many spy or spy adjacent films out there. I mean, we've tackled some weird ones like the Men in Black franchise, because technically they're in disguise. Um, it, it really can go anywhere. And also, we tend to try and get interviews for our reviews, someone, either an actor on the film or someone that worked behind the scenes. So we've had, you know, John Glenn from the James Bond series, Nicholas Meyer, who we mentioned earlier. Um and all sorts, really, just to try and sort of contextualize how that film happened. We, one of our best ones was the uh, 1998 The Avengers film. Amazing. Uh, we had the writer and the director on for interviews to just try and figure out what the hell happened with that film. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a strange, strange time for Sean Connery around then, right? It's kind of like you could argue The Rock was his like last foray at being, a, being in a decent film. And then it's kind of all downhill from there. There's feels... nothing wrong with getting a little bit wet. <laughs> it feels like an actor who's getting older and doesn't understand the way the marketplace is going. And so is signing on to things like the Avengers and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because he's probably looking going like, I don't know, people like The Matrix. They like these Batman movies. I don't know what I should be doing. Well, yeah, and it's, uh, I always find it like fascinating. It was like doing the research for this film and finding out that it was, what, 52? when he made this so he would mm. yeah it would have been really in his twilight years when he's kind of making those sort of really like out of touch and out of time of what was going on and yeah the the rock is it's a, it's a firm favorite here on this podcast it gets it gets a lot of love um so i find it interesting yeah you you say you nicked your name from mission impossible there's something that's like been covered on this podcast on patreon i'm currently looking at the films of brian de palma and I find it I found that really interesting because obviously you guys are coming at it from that angle of looking at it from a spy film. And then I found it really interesting watching it for that series, looking at it as a De Palma film. So like mm-hmm. obviously like there that it almost works on two different levels of film like Mission Impossible, because it's you can look at it as like, yeah, it's doing all these all the beats of what you would find in a spy film. But then at the same time, it works on that level of, oh, it's still doing all the things that Brian De Palma loves to do. It's all about, like, I, I guess a lot of that goes hand in hand, like voyeurism and kind of double crossing and stuff like that. But that's kind of a thread that's been like throughout his career, whether it's like kind of erotic thrillers and stuff like that he's done. And then it just lends itself perfectly to something like Mission Impossible. And obviously, whether people love or hate where that franchise has gone, like he kind of set a great template for that in a weird way. It also works really well within just the filmography of Tom Cruise, yes. where so many of his movies are about these young, incredibly capable guys who have these mentor figures they need to exceed past. And, uh, you know, that all applies to Mission Impossible as well. Like that's a we haven't covered that one on the show yet. That's probably going to be a ways down the road. But uh, there's a lot to dig into with that original Mission Impossible. Definitely, definitely. Well, um, one thing I like to do on this podcast before we talk about the film at hand is to find out a Bit, well, yeah, a bit of your kind of background, what, 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 how you became aware of the, the Coppola family. So we'll start with you, Cam. Like, when did you become aware of them? Not just as like an individual person. Like, I guess both of you would have that entry point. But when did you start to realize that 
fucking hell, there's like there's loads of them. Do you know what I mean? There's a, there's a whole spider's web of a family. Like, I was always quite aware of Francis Ford Coppola because, you know, in North America, the Godfather is just, you can't grow up without having references to the Godfather thrown at you, even through something like The Simpsons as a kid. But I'm trying to think of like when the Coppola family became more of something I became aware. I would guess, I was like a big fan of Nick Cage Uh uh, in the 90s. And, uh, you know, obviously stuff like The Rock, but I was watching, I remember renting Honeymoon in Vegas and films like that. So I would guess as soon as I found out his last name was Coppola, that is sort of the tipping point for me of going like, huh? <laughs> and then, you know, somewhere along the, lo- uh, ar- along the road, finding out, you know, Talia Shire's connection to him, because I was very familiar with her because of the Rocky movies. So it would have been, I would say for me, kind of that late teens, uh, late 90s period. What about yourself, uh, Scott? When did you like, when did you figure out there was, yeah, this harem of a family? Basically when you contacted us to be on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, it, it, if anyone from the show jumps over, listen to an episode of Spy Hards, you'll quickly find out how much of an idiot I am and how much of cinema I've never seen. Um, so I had seen The Godfather in sort of my late teens. Mm-hmm. So I, I had that Francis Ford Coppola connection, I suppose. But other than that, I, I did see the Rockies, so I guess I'd seen them too, but I'd never put two and two together and connected them. I'd never done the research. So I, I guess I don't have much of a Coppola connection, I suppose. Well, yeah, it's it's, it's a fascinating one. And then it's, it's, there's piece people like Jason Schwartzman or like a Jack Schwartzman who kind of... Mm. Uh, and there's, yeah, John Schwartzman as well, who kind of uh, DOP on The Rock and kind of was... Michael Bay's kind of right-hand man in kind of developing that style. So did Armageddon and kind of has since become Colin Trevorrow's guy. So done the book of Henry Jurassic uh, world. And now it's going to be doing Jurassic world dominion. <laughs> yeah. He's not, he's not the best DOP <laughs> in the up, world. But... Up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's, there's, there's kind of tendrils that go everywhere and it's kind of, I, I found as I've gone through like doing the films and kind of looking, doing the ridiculous research, oh, maybe I've seen more of these films than I actually knew. Do you know what I mean? Because you don't, there's certain people you don't think about, like, oh, like the behind the scenes bit, or like, yeah, I didn't know who was a, the second set dresser on this film. They happen to be related to the Coppola family. Um, so. It's it's interesting what you find out when you put a lot of time into a particular yes. subject. Is there something that we found out with spy films? It's just we we keep finding connections between spy films, and that one is riffing off of the other. Uh, going back to like you know the Hitchcock days or way before that, Fritz Lang films. They have these connections that you just come across over time that you start putting together, and it is quite a fascinating uh, web. Yes, and even as you said, you know this movie we're going to talk about today, Never Seen Ever Again as a screenplay by Lorenzo Semple Jr., who also wrote Three Days of the Condor, which is one of the all-time great spy films. And he also, you know, created the Adam West Batman show. So those connections are always interesting. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, I always like to ask, um, I don't know, I don't, we'll start with you here, Scott. Have you ever met a Coppola? Well, probably not knowingly, considering you didn't really know, know that much <laughs> about them until I sent you the list. Well, well. I, I, get, I get around. Uh, <laughs> You know, um, well, if, if any of them have ever been to West London, then maybe. But other than that, I haven't traveled too much. Uh, I go to Las Vegas quite a bit. So maybe I've shared a casino with one of them. Who knows? Yeah, you could have easily have uh, walked past Nicolas Cage in the street. I know he, he, he lives in he lives in Vegas now. He's a big uh, he loves the tax breaks there. So he's a big uh, he's a big lover of Vegas. 
Well, Cam and I are actually reuniting in Vegas in a few months' time, so maybe we'll go on the hunt for Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Amazing. It sounds like a spy film in itself. Uh, what about you, Cam? Have you ever had the pleasure of meeting a Coppola? No, I don't think so. I, I, Scott and I go to Star Trek cons you know, every summer, and we have for almost a decade. Obviously, the pandemic put, a, uh, put the brakes on that for a couple of years, but um, we've met a lot of people who've worked on star trek you know and sometimes that's just guest stars and stuff i'm trying to think of any of them have coppola connections it's entirely possible somewhere along the road but nothing that jumps to mind i would love to meet nick cage i adore nick cage i actually have a separate dvd shelf right you know to the right of me that is entirely all nick cage movies oh. so that would be a dream come true a man after my own heart yeah that is basically uh 90 of my my like physical media collection is nick cage films sometimes doubled up as well because i am insane uh, <laughs> so uh what would have been the first film that you guys would have seen that would have had a connection to jack schwartzman am, am i fair in saying it possibly was never say never again i oh i think there's for me a real good chance of that because i saw never say never again probably when i was 11 or 12 years old when it aired on tv uh -huh. and at that age um you tend to see whatever your parents rent for you um so i i think there's a pretty good shot of that yeah of him of this being the first never saw rad the big uh the big skateboard movie like that kind of uh that, 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 i know that was like a bit a big cult hit in uh, north america at least yeah, no, um, I wasn't cool, so no, I didn't. <laughs> uh, what about yourself, Scott? Or is this is this the first Jack Schwartzman film you would have seen, or possibly only? I think it is most likely the only, but I was looking through his IMDb today, and I did note that he has also produced another film with a Bond actor. Uh, he produced one in 1991 with Roger Moore called Bed and Breakfast. Yes. Uh, <laughs> which I, I kind of wish I had seen because it looks uh, like an absolute riot and it actually stars Talia Shire. Of course, as many, yeah. I was going to say, aforementioned Rad as well, I think was a Talia Shire vehicle. Um, Although it's a bit worrying that in the artwork for the film, uh, Roger Moore in 1991, so he's in his 60s I think by this point, is sharing a bed with Talia Shire, <laughs> which is age appropriate. Uh, Colleen Dewhurst, who is much older, and then Nina Siamatsko, I believe is how you pronounce her surname, from the West Wing, and she is in her early 20s at this point. She's just starred in Airheads just before this. So, uh, yeah, worrying uh, range of women there. <laughs> Perfect. Well, let's talk about Never Say Never Again. Before we do, here's a little trailer. Sean Connery is James Bond, Agent 007. Never say never again. My name is Bond. Oh, you're Mr. Bond. I believe I'm having you in half an hour. Oh, splendid. Your room or mine? Have you, Mr. Bond? You're marvelously well equipped. Thank you, James. So are you. Good to see you, Mr. Bond. 
things have been awfully dull around here. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so too. Bunt. The game is over. Sean Connery is Ian Fleming's James Bond in Never Say Never Again. So I'll drop some stats and then I think we need to talk about that trailer. So this film uh, was made on a budget of $36 million with a box office return of $160 million and was released in the US on the 7th of October 1983 with a release in the UK on the 15th of December of the same year so yeah let's let's talk about that trailer real quick because uh when watching the film uh, that's the first time i've heard that trailer when q delivers that line i was like if that was released today that would immediately be a trailer quote like it would like it, it feels set up for it right it's also probably one of the best lines in the film so no wonder they Definitely. dropped it into that trailer it's great <laughs> It, well, it, it's it's obviously playing on um, how Bond has potentially changed since the 60s. And there's, oh. there's a lot of people who didn't like Roger Moore and uh, wanted to go back to the days of uh, Sean Connery throttling women in the 60s and uh, really, really longed for that time. So I guess that was a call out to them. Yeah, although like I would argue that the final product probably gave them something more along the lines of Roger Moore than Sean Connery. <laughs> mm hmm. So, I mean, so, yeah. I do love the porn music playing throughout that trailer. That's something else. Um, may actually be better than the score to this movie. So, you know. Yeah, yeah that's, I'm so, that, that, that's, some, that's something I want to discuss is the score for this film at some point. I'll save it then. I have some notes, but we'll get to that. <laughs> so, yeah, before, before, we, before we chat about the film, I always like to ask my guests to provide a synopsis for the film. Would anyone like to jump on that grenade? Um, okay, yeah. So, Thunderball, 1965. <laughs> Spectre steals two nu nuclear missiles that they are going to use for nefarious purposes and blackmail the West to pay them whatever, ex fill in the dollar amount, um, and they send in James Bond to thwart the evil Spectre plot headed by Largo and Blofeld. Amazing. So yeah, can you guys shed some light? Is this just a remake of the the film Thunderbolt, or is it just another readaptation of the book? It's definitely a readaptation of the book. I think the the lawyers will specify we have to say so, <laughs> um, because it, it isn't remaking Thunderbolt. It's making steps to not be Thunderbolt, which I I actually appreciate because I don't really like Thunderbolt that much. But and Cam doesn't like that. I know. Don't don't shout at me, Cam. I'm sorry. But um, yeah, it's definitely a real adaptation because it, for those who don't know the story, basically Ian Fleming and Kevin McClory and some other people wrote a screenplay for a TV adaptation of James Bond. That's, actually I think that's film adaptation. It, oh, I'm sorry. It was a film uh, and it didn't get picked up. And so Ian Fleming released Thunderball as a book, as, oh. as he would. He had a deadline and he just put the book out. It was basically just pretty much a rip from that screenplay to a book. And so Kevin McClory didn't like that and sued the pants off of him. And Thunderball was in contention for a very long time. I know they wanted to actually shoot Thunderball a lot earlier than they actually did in the Connery run, I think. Yeah, um, they were originally going to do it, I think, in place of Goldfinger. 
and maybe even mm. actually you know it might have even been considered um to be the first one and and they went with dr no instead yeah and so um they eventually settled and agreed that the Eon team could make Thunderball, but Kevin McClory would have to be involved with the production, and he was involved with the production of the film. And then the the set the clause was they couldn't then remake Thunderball for another ten years. I think fifteen years passed, and mm-hmm. Kevin McClory decided he wanted to have another crack at Bond. And this is where it gets interesting because you know, Scott, you're saying it's not Thunderball, but like. It was an issue where originally they wanted to do kind of something completely different, where you're going to have like remote control sharks with nuclear bombs on their backs, that sort of stuff. It went really <laughs> kind of crazy. And there was going to be like an undersea villain lair. And Eon, who owns the bond rights, the cinematic bond rights, just kept like filing lawsuits that you're making original bond films. You're not allowed to do that. It's got to be Thunderball. And so essentially through the entire writing process of this movie, they had to constantly have it vetted by lawyers to ensure that it was close to thunderball which is a crazy prospect right to like you think like making a film is probably hard enough as it is to then like have i don't know bowing to not just studio pressure in general but then to lawyers as well to to make sure it's in keeping with basically copying another product sounds 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 mental so how, how does this for you guys like obviously as I said earlier, I'm a complete Bond novice. How does this kind of compare to Bond at the time? Like, what was the state of Bond in the 80s? Well, I think Cam's probably best to answer that one because it's not my favorite era of Bond. Okay, so this is the Roger Moore era, and it's deep in the Roger Moore era. So in 81, he does Free Your Eyes Only, and Roger Moore is like, you know, I'm getting kind of old. I think it may be time for me to leave. And so they were really looking at bringing in someone else to play Bond, but because this project was taking off this Never Say Never Again, um, Eon got scared and was like, we've got to get Roger Moore back. And so 83 became the year of the Battle of the Bonds, where they were opening Octopussy as well as Never Say Never Again. And Octopussy got an earlier release. Never Say Never Again was towards the end of the year. And it was a big question of like, which one would emerge victorious? Because Sean Connery was so beloved with audiences, they were... I think genuinely concerned that it was going to crush Octopussy, but it turned out in the end, audiences favored Octopussy, which was the bigger hit of the year. It's interesting to say, though, that Never Say Never Again actually had a better opening weekend than Octopussy. And then they saw it and word of mouth. (laughs) (laughs) There is that. (laughs) So should we talk about some of these early scenes in the film? Because I find this quite an interesting from the bonds i have seen just like it's a very weird first half hour for a bond film (laughs) where it's basically bond on holiday at like a spa retreat getting i don't what is it he's over the hill right he's kind of we're supposed to believe that he's kind of he's he's retired somewhat and there's kind of like they've had enough of his shit that's what you kind of get from those early scenes right well, I mean, I don't think this conversation would be right unless we had the score of Never Say Never Again, the song playing over the conversation for the first five minutes, just really obnoxiously so we can't hear anything. So never, I think, never, I think pa- never say never again. Right, so never, the reason why they went never, to Shrublands is, no, that, that's just good. Please stop, Cam. I, can't, I can only hear that song so many times. Um, well, unfortunately, they had to take a lot of this from the Thunderball book, but this is also in the film, uh, the original Thunderball film, 
But I, I the opening of this is different for a reason because they can't do things like the um, gun barrel sequence that you would usually yep. find in the Bond film. They can't do that because that's an Eon thing. Um, you can't have like the the, the Maybaum credit sequences. Is it Maybaum? No, Binder. Maurice Binder. Binder. Sorry, Maurice Binder. Yep. Um, you can't have the Binder credit sequences. So they had to try and find a way of bringing Connery back. And they chose this, which I'm really not sure why they chose this, because apparently uh, originally when they cut this intro, it had no music to it. It was like, it had like a ticking clock going on to make it mm-hmm. like, feel like it was pacier. And for some reason in editing, they just put the song over the top. And it's, it's so weird to have this like love ballad while Sean Connery is mercilessly killing people on screen. It's yeah, it's, I found tonally it's just quite bizarre the way it kind of just starts. I was just like, I, I guess as well, because it's ingrained of how a Bond film is supposed to be. Like you kind of have the opening action action set piece into the credits. Mm-hmm. And then this is just kind of like, we have to do the complete opposite to that. So like, let's just kind of throw everything at the wall. And as you said, the, the, the s- score in this film is a weird... A, a weird aspect of it. There are moments like you're saying, like originally they had that ticking clock, and it's like that 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 probably would have that, that could have worked a lot better than as you say, like this obnoxiously loud mixed version of the track just playing over this sequence of him killing people. But then there's like there's 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 moments in this film. There's like that big fight sequence he has with Pat Roach, and it's like it is silent. It is deadly silent in like a in a spa retreat and it's like has nobody heard all of this commotion they are literally like wrecking the fucking place and it's just like do you know what I mean we can hear as the audience like it's there's like do you know what I mean? they don't even try and mask it by like let's put a bit of a bit of bombast bombastic score do you know what I mean the, the, yeah the score is absent when it needs to be and kind of comes in when it doesn't need to be well like when you think of Bond as a franchise it's kind of known for sort of a bit of class, and then also just top-tier action filmmaking. And when I watch uh-huh. the opening of Never Say Never Again, I just think of like a Chuck Norris movie of the 80s. Like, it has a real, like, generic 80s action look to it. Well, yeah, almost, it almost looks like, like, it reminds me of, like, Commando, almost, like, this this film in a weird way. Like, it's kind of like, it's, it's Commando with the violence stripped out of it, just in the way, like, I don't know, it's... it's and is that first mission? Is it just like a dummy mission as well? Like, I, 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 I was I, I? I'm not sure if I got confused there because the way they're kind of, yeah, as you said, you can't really hear what they're talking about when they're kind of having that first meeting. Either. Well, so it's, they, a tra- it, it's a training God, mission. Yeah. yeah, it's a training yeah. mission to, I guess, test this 52 year old agent and see if he's up to snuff. But um, it is really interesting. You have that sequence, and then four years later, Eon does their own training sequence at the start of the Living Daylights. And it's like phenomenal. And I wonder if that was a little bit of a screw you to this movie. <laughs> also, they had a much younger actor in Timothy Dalton with that, which probably helped a little bit. But I, I, I quite like the concept of, and it doesn't do much with it further on in the film. It really drops this concept basically after Shrublands. But the older Bond, I think that's a really fascinating thing that you could dig into. I don't think any of the Bond films have really gone into it. I think there's really a, actually room for a, a Bond film to do it now. Like a, I would love to see Pierce Brosnan come back myself for one last film, but no one seems to want to do that. <laughs> um, I, I, I like this whole idea of Edward Fox, uh, yeah, 
the jackal himself coming into play M and it, he's actually meant to be younger than Connery in this film. And he's like, he doesn't like the double O section, doesn't understand it, thinks it's silly. And so he's like trying to put this old bomb through his paces and thinks he needs to go to a health clinic to be, uh, you know, enamored back into shape and uh, expunged of his free radicals. Uh, I've got a lot of free radicals in me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I just that's, get, that's just years of drinking. I just kept thinking about the new radicals. You only get yeah, what you give, Cam. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, that's what, that's what I could Give think. it to me that's now. Like... I, I do like uh, the concept of like the old Bond. I think that's something interesting they could have done here, but I think they're so wedged in by the Thunderball remake aspect that it's like, it's like um, Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Like, I like the idea of an older adventurer. And what does that look like? And in both yeah. cases, they set it up, they acknowledge the age, and then they quickly drop it and just treat it like a typical story in that sort of canon. And I'm like, really? You had that opportunity. You could have done something cool there. Well, there's, there's a way in this film and that idea of an aging Bond for that to be an obstacle, like him being like a man out of time, like he's kind of used to these old ways and the world has moved on and that becomes an obstacle in itself. Whereas this is like, hey, do you know what? The film's just going to bend back into those old ways of like, it's the swinging 60s again. It's kind of almost, I don't know, carry on movie. Like, especially like, it's like carry on matron when he's at the health spa and like ev everyone he speaks to, like, yeah, I've just got a clip just to kind of set the tone of what it's like when he's at this health spa. Mr. Bond, I need a urine sample. If you could fill this beaker for me. From here? <laughs> the, the film is like kind of littered with that. And we heard in that trailer when the, when the, when the woman says about like, uh, I've, I've got to see you in a bit. And he's like, oh, my room or yours. Like, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's it, it, it feel, I, as, as somebody who, I don't know, isn't well versed in Bond. Even this feels like it's outdated maybe in the 80s as, as, as yeah something that's a throwback to the 60s I, I think by the time you have Dalton turning up for the living daylights then yes it, this would look aged but this is the same year Octopussy came out and we would have um a view to a kill a couple of years later and they both are laden with this type of comedy uh, it's one of the reasons why I have a trouble with the sort of 80s Bond films, uh, personally. But the this this sort of dialogue you're talking about is actually the product of two screenwriters who are uncredited, um, uh, but they're actually pretty big in sort of British comedy. So it's uh, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And they're responsible for like porridge, stuff like that. And they were brought in basically to punch up the witty banter. And so all that sort of stuff in the film is because of them. Yeah, and they also um, were the ones that created the Rowan Atkinson character. So like some of the really broad comedic stuff is them. I've always, I think what puts me off a little bit with this movie is that in some ways it kind of wants to be a little bit of a spoof. Not like a full-on Austin Powers mm -hmm. or, you know, spy hard take on Bond, but like it wants to be more overtly comedic than some of the classic Conneries, which is fine, but then it takes its plot so seriously and just grinds to a halt. I mean, this is like a two-hour and 13-minute movie that really does yeah. take its time and has some very weird stuff with Kim Basinger later on that I'm sure we'll get to. But like, 
it's kind of this weird i mean you can tell that a lot of people wrote on this i mean you have you know the simple junior screenplay you have you know um clement and lafrenay who worked on it and have been quite public about that but there were other writers involved as well and uh you know allegedly uh, francis ford coppola contributed some material as well so uh, i think this may have been too many cooks in the kitchen and not quite figuring out a consistent tone so i think you know moments like these some of these crazy comedic moments are kind of what fans take from the movie and what they enjoy is that it gets weird a lot (laughs) Mm. i will say though just in defense of this film uh i think this delivers the shrubland sequence better than thunderball does no way come on the trolling act with um with a guy Dolman in uh, Thunderball, I don't know. That's pretty fun. Just just because someone gets locked in a Schwitz does not make it a better <laughs> sequence. Like the the stuff about like molesting the nurse and that's a bit icky. At least this yeah. is a, a more of a contemporary a contemporary sort of take on it, and I think it's just quicker. That's I appreciate true. That it just goes by quicker, and it's just kind of funny. And I it's also less confusing with uh, Phantom of Blush than it was with uh, Fiona Volpe. And I think also that fight with fat, uh, with a fat poor <laughs> Pat Roach, <laughs> apologies, Mr. Roach, <laughs> um, you know, who was one of those great burly, who was one of those great, otherwise he'd be coming for you, Cam. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Pat Roach was one of those great burly, tough guy, um, you know, supporting actors who would show up in things. He had two iconic fights with Indiana Jones in that series. With the uh, he was the guy that he fought, that fought Indy beside the flying wing in Raiders, and then also fought him on the Rock Crusher in Temple of Doom. So he's awesome, and I think they stage a f- incredible fight here. That yeah, I have to admit, Scott, um, there's nothing as cool as that fight in Thunderball, although. The geography of that fight is head scratching, where it's like these adjoining <laughs> rooms off a hallway. It's like one leads to a kitchen, one leads to a bedroom, and one leads to a like a room filled with beakers of chemicals. <laughs> yes, I love, I, I love. You get that nice little bit of levity as well in that, where it's obviously addressing the fact that why has nobody come to come to see what's going on, and there's just like all the people like watching a a box, boxing match on tv and they're kind of like fighting in the background and kind of like tearing down the halls and stuff like that and then it, yeah the fight ends on a punchline right because he throws he throws a vat well like a beaker full of chemicals in his face which turns out to be uh his own piss which begs the question what is what what is in what what have all those martinis done to james bond's piss that's, uh, that's what i want to know I can only assume it is laden with alcohol, and that's why when it gets in the guy's eye, he is incapacitated immediately. I hate that moment. I, to me, that's low. Like you would never see that in an Eon film. They are a little classier than that. I, 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 I think I think it got me. So yeah, obviously, around this as well, there's the plot by the kind of the Spectre villains, and they've come to kidnap a. What is he like? Just like a, an American, like general or something like that. Ca- a captain, Captain Jack. I've, I've written in my notes to kind of take out one. Of, what do they, what, what do they do? Explain to me, guy. What do they do to his arm? Okay. Um. So basically, <laughs> and this is the same Strap as in Thunderball. In, folks. Yeah. Strap in. In Thunderball, it's a little. It's it's pretty similar, but a little different. Um. So in this case, 
It is a pilot. They've gotten hooked on heroin, and Fatima Blush is his drug yes. supplier, <laughs> and is <laughs> they have put him through a process to, I guess, implant an eye that matches the President of the United States, which, when you see the terrifying looking eye this man has it has it raises a lot of questions about what the president of the united states looked like in the alternate universe of this bond world but uh, he looked like a space alien i think but nonetheless like that's kind of the gist so it's just this pilot who's hooked on heroin in the original it's more that they have gotten this pilot just fallen under the spell of fiona volpe who is the fatima blush character in that movie here they introduce all the drugs because it's the 1980s and you gotta have drug subplots yeah, and like the, the, I thought, like his kind of arc felt like something in another Bond film would be just treated as maybe I don't know, or like in just another film in general, that kind of plotline would be dealt with maybe in a pre-title sequence of just kind of like it's set up. Do you know what I mean, it's set up that the villains have got the whereas this film really just like drags it out right, and then again back to the music that moment when he's. um like driving in the car after he's he's like changed the nuclear uh, warheads to to not dummies to to the active ones there's again like this really weird sounds like a new orleans like brass band music playing and i was like is that on the radio of his car and then his car crashes and the music continues i was like oh no this is a score cue and this is quite frankly like buzz- like very very bizarre and f- yeah fatima's got a snake again like we're introduced to we're introduced to a snake here and i was like oh that's gonna come back in the film dropped well i mean animal cruelty will come back in this film (laughs) accurate yes that's very true and i mean like the gimmick of the guy having the eye that can control the electronic device that's tied to the safeties of the nuclear bombs like that that's fine that's a very bondian subplot i don't have any issue with that there is just something like kind of like you know the the um the Bond films, the Eon Bond films, like they have American talent obviously attached to them and working on them, but like they have a little more of a, I think, a class and refinement. Whereas this movie to me feels very American. Like this is an American group trying to make a James Bond film, and when you get into kind of stuff like the pilot hooked on heroin and all that stuff, it has like kind of a '80s grodiness that you see in in uh, American films. So yeah, well, I guess around this point of the film, I wanted to talk about like the portrayal of Blofeld by Max von Sydow. What did you make of his kind of? Because I thought he was going to be the the main villain in this, and it's kind of up until this point we've only seen the Max character kind of on screen. But yeah, what 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 do you make of his portrayal as Blofeld? Obviously, knowing other portrayals out there. Well, it's an interesting one because. For if you look at the source material, and that's all they're supposed uh-huh. to be using, Blofeld doesn't have a cat. Okay. And the cat is an invention by the Eon films. So it always uh-huh. bugs me that they were allowed to have a cat, or they wanted to have a cat in the first place when it's not in the source material. So for a film that's trying to distance itself and say that this is the uh, superior Bond, it's riffing on a lot of the stuff that. Eon, you still use, um, and that I, I always find that cat funny. But Max von Sydow is one of the better Blofelds. Yeah, I like Sydow a lot. I would love to have seen him have like a few film appearances in the you know the official Bond entries. I think he's that good, and he's just 
outside of this movie, he's an incredible actor. I mean, we've I've referenced uh, Three Days of the Condor earlier, and he's absolutely incredible in that movie. He's so threatening. I've heard that there was more material with him shot for this movie that they slashed out. I mean, it's a two hour, 13 minute movie. I'm sure they were just trying to keep this thing paced in some way. But um, <laughs> honestly, like, I think he's more effective here than uh, than Largo is. So I would have preferred him as your main villain, really. Too much, yeah, that- too much. And it would have been pussies galore. Oh, <laughs> I'll leave now. I, I, I found like seeing, I think it's when Fatima goes into the bank. And it's like revealed that there's like that underground layer and stuff like that. That's like, I was getting excited. I was like, for me, for my limited knowledge, like, this is Bond. This is spy films. Like, when you're playing as a kid and you think of like, oh, what, what, what happened? Do you know what I mean? Like, if you're playing spies, it'd be like, oh, yeah, you, you, t- you, you turn a book and you do that and you like reveal this layer. And I love, I just love the detail of that. Um, there's the skull he has that has like a little camera that pops mm. out when he's doing his his conference calls and stuff like that or like addressing is it the un he addresses when he kind of gives that threatening speech and a very tells us what specter means and i guess it's just as like you you saying about your your version of the knock list and your your acronym for it like specter's quite <laughs> uh, quite dodgy as well what does it what does it stand for guys can you do you, can you, do you remember us? scott no, I know one of it's extortion and torture or something like that. <laughs> it's special executive. Oh my god. Uh for torture. No, okay. Special executive for counterterrorism, uh revenge and extortion. Oh. Uh counterintelligence, not counterterrorism. Oh right. Terrorism is its separate one. Like they're like we love a bit of terrorism because he says in his speech, doesn't he? He's like uh we'll be using We'll be using extortion, but if you don't, if you don't pay up, we'll be we'll be going to we'll be going to the to the fourth fourth commandment. We'll be using revenge to get back at you. And I was like, that's when I was like, oh, Max von Sydow's the villain in this. That's going to be great. Like he's quite a menacing guy. And then we kind of get I don't know, quite eighties flouncing guy who's kind of like into video games and <laughs> watching his girlfriend dance in a dance studio whilst listening to like the same eight bars on loop <laughs> continuously forever well in the, in the original thunderball you do get the same introduction but without seeing blofeld you just sort of see his lap with the cat that's where nice. the sort of iconic shot really comes yes. from um I, I know there was an actor in that i believe it was the same actor who played him in from russia with love but then it wasn't until you only live twice that we got uh what's the chap's name cam who donald plays him pleasant. properly donald pleasant who actually plays him on screen properly for the first time and actually act as Blofeld. But um, I, I think this is probably the more inferior take of the two. Uh, the Thunderbolt is actually a lot cooler, the, the sort of sets and they get, people get killed in the chairs. Like if, if you think about what happens in the Austin Powers films with the guys in the chairs yeah. get sent down, that's where they got that from basically from Thunderbolt. You get a little less of that here and then it does of course throw over to Largo. Um, and this is such a weird take on Largo. Although, I would argue, like, Scott, we talked about Thunderball on Spy Hards a while back, but, like, Mm -hmm. is Largo a great villain? I think that may be a little bit of the problem with the the material is that, like, Largo is no Goldfinger when you look at, you know, the all-time Bond villains. I think the original, they have a little more interesting concept where he's just an older guy. The eye patch, of course, helps with the iconography, and 
you have Domino as more of like this kept woman by him. Whereas mm. here, like, who is this guy? He doesn't seem to care much about Domino at all. Whereas he really, well, he was abusing her in Thunderball. Yeah. In the original. Like it was a really dysfunctional relationship. And it, it, the payoff at the end is very good in Thunderball. But here okay. it's, he hasn't got a gimmick. He hasn't got a gimmick apart from video games, I suppose. Well, and, and, and to that relationship with Domino, I was like very confused. I was like, have I missed something here? Because she seems like a willing participant in his lifestyle. And it's like, he's clearly like, a, he's a Bond villain. Do you know what I mean? Like that is kind of like, like if, if you're kind of hanging around with him, like what do you think he does all day in these kind of like, on, on, his, on his massive boat in his like control room and stuff like that. And she's just happy to like, hey, I'm, do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm living my uh, Olivia Newton John lifestyle in kind of leg warmers and like prancing around in, 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 in a dance studio all day. And it's like, well, what do you think this guy's doing? She, she's a real, and uh, I apologize if you haven't seen Tomorrow Never Dies, but she's a real like prototype for Paris Carver and Elliot Carver's relationship. And that's the villain in Tomorrow Never Dies and then Terry Hatcher, who plays his wife, who's killed mm. off quite early on. And she is married to this guy who's clearly insane. He's completely <laughs> off his rocker. And you're like, why is she with him? What? She used to be with Bond. None of this makes any sense to me. And this is the same problem. Yeah, I yeah, think... She's just... The domino thing might have worked here if you played her as, oh, I hesitate to say this because I was going to say younger, but do I want to see like a younger domino with like 52 year old Connery? No, I don't. But at the same time, if she was a little younger, you might buy that she's that naive. Mm-hmm. But like Kim Basinger, I think at this point's in her, I don't know, late 20s, maybe early 30s. I don't really know. But it feels kind of weird because the way she treats Largo in their first scene together, like you get the sense these two characters are actually in love with each other. It doesn't Mm. come across as cold or as she is kind of this kept woman by him. You get the sense it's this kind of like warm relationship, which to me underlines that like they never had a good angle on their relationship Mm. in the film period, just on a screenplay. If you, in that, in that scene where he gives her, the tears of Allah, like the the pendant, mm-hmm. it feels like it's played not not for the characters themselves. It feels like that whole scene is just played for the audience, which like it and it, and in part by like that just doesn't make sense for the characters because we're supposed to believe like yeah they they do have this relationship and then just on a dime it's like now he, he's letting it slip. It's like oh what if I like. What if I get rid of it or something like that? And he's like, I will cut your throat. And it's like, who, who, who is that for? Like, why are you all of a sudden just turning on a dime saying, like, I'm going to kill you to her? And it's supposed to be, you're supposed to be keeping her under this illusion that everything's all right. He's happily to, like, gaslight her all the time, going like, don't worry, your brother's just down the hall. Do you know what I mean? He's like, he's like Henry Hill in, uh, in Goodfellas. Like, yeah, just go down there. Just go down there. Like, and he's, yeah, he's a terrible guy. I, I I will say, if you buy me a yacht and keep my cupboard full of leg warmers and buy me the odd bit of jewelry, I, I'm probably quite easy to please as well. <laughs> I would say, too, like, you can talk about the evolution of writing female characters, but I think the 1965 version of Domino is a little more active and yeah. just has a better sense of what's going on. Like, the Domino in this movie just seems a little clueless a lot. 
Well, it, it's mm-hmm. funny because like Domino finds out her brother died in Thunderball and she cries. And then you get that great scene where they shoot Vargas with the, the harpoon gun. Uh, he got the point. Great line. But in this, they're dancing and she doesn't stop dancing. And she never really shows any sign of emotion as she finds out her, her brother dies. They're just dancing. It's like, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is bizarre. So what I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you guys about is like kind of how does this work in regards to like the tropes of a James Bond film? Does this film like kind of meet a lot of them or does it kind of leave a lot of them to the wayside? Um, well, like it has, a, you know, you have the Q like character. I think Algernon is his name in this movie or Algy played by Alec uh, McGowan, who was actually a friend of Q's, uh, the Q actor, Desmond Llewellyn. So um, they play him differently, but it's that similar thing of being outfitted for gadgets when he's sent on the mission. So that's there. You also have Bernie Casey showing up as Felix Leiter, who was a regular mm-hmm. character in the um, Bond series. But if you're expecting like your, you know, vodka martini shaken, not stirred, that's not there. Um, you do have a Bond, James Bond, I think, slipped in. Um, and it's a lo- delivered very weirdly. It is. And I it, wonder it, if that was because Bond, James Bond is probably copyrighted, but maybe if they like change the delivery enough, they could sneak it by, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> I'm Bond, <laughs> James Bond. <laughs> yeah, we put some ellipsis in there. It's like Bond. One, two, three. James Bond. It's like all of a sudden you've got, you, you, you've passed the senses. It's like changing a couple of notes on a riff. And it's like, hey, don't worry. We're going to pass the copyright right here. We're going to sell this single to the masses. Well, it's crazy that this film even got made when you think about it. I mean, they had to go through one, two, three, four people to get each section of the script approved. So you've got McClory, you've got Connery, you've got um, there's someone else, uh, maybe the producers, and then also the legal team who were checking everything against Eon to make sure they were not going to sue the pants off of them every time. And that's like for every single word of the script. Yeah, that's gotta cost it's, money. It's like, I, I guess it's like you would liken it to being like the Audi James Bond, where it's like, do you know what I mean? Like where Audi's uh, like marketing department and their legal department are kind of sat next to each other. It's like, let's make this look like Pringles, mm. just enough that like we don't get sued, and that's kind of like the vibe you get from this film in regards to like they're like. How close can we get to the vibe of a James Bond film without it like kind of treading on the toes of Eon and like as you said, like getting sued up the wazoo for everything. And it's kind of it it feels like too much effort to make a film under the under that like that pressure. Do you, do you, do you know what I mean? Like it feels just feels like why why bother? Why not just like and it's that thing today, like why have to go for IP all the time? Why not just try and Make a spy film that is different. Do you know what I mean? An aging do 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 something that kind of riffs on the James Bond thing, but doesn't use the James Bond name. Well, I mean, Kevin McClory is the reason there, and that he really felt um, a certain amount of ownership over James Bond because he was attached to this original screenplay that would have been mm-hmm. the first ever Bond film. And so I think it was a little bit of that. I missed out on the glory. Eon stepped in, you know, a few years later, launched Dr. No, and then have been ruling the world with Bond movies. I want my share of this and trying to kind of create his own offshoot Bond film here to kind of capture what he felt was probably owed to him. 
And he did actually even consider he was developing another remake of Thunderball for like the 90s, I think. And it was going to be called uh, Warhead 2000 AD. And I believe Mm -hmm. he was looking at like Timothy Dalton and what have you to star in it. And it never happened. But like even this movie, the original title was Warhead. So uh, I don't know. It's a, I don't know, it feels like a, a, a bit of a mess. So let's let's talk about some of the aspects you guys like about this film. We'll start with you, Scott. What what are the things that like specific scenes or or moments or characters that you enjoy? I I'll go back to the basics. I just love seeing Sean Connery as James Bond. He is yeah. he is James Bond. They it's on the posters of like You Only Live Twice and Thunderball. Sean Connery is James Bond. And he is. I'm sorry. I was brought into the game by Pierce Brosnan, and I have a soft spot for Pierce Brosnan. I'll, I love his films, except for Die Another Day. But even I could acknowledge Sean Connery is the James Bond. So any excuse to get more time with him is a delight for me. I, I Diamonds are forever. This, I mean, this is the thing. Never's Never Again is generally disregarded in, in the pantheon of James Bond films. According to most purists, there's only 25 James Bond films. Now, to me, there's 27, because that's just how it is. There's also the Casino Royale from the 60s. I count them all, and to me, there's 27 films. And I would hold this film over two other Connery films. I think this is not his worst performance. And so for me, it's always a treat to watch this film. Uh, I'm not uh, (laughs) I'm not as charitable towards it but I do regard it as sort of an interesting curiosity as I do the 67 Casino Royale I think with Connery there's always that little asterisk next to him in that Sean Connery is James Bond when I'm talking about Dr. No through Thunderball and even Uh. Thunderball he's starting to slide a little and I think once you get to You Only Live Twice in Diamonds, his you know, last two official entries, uh, he's not exactly firing on all cylinders. He's not bad. He's still watchable. He has just an innate charisma that will always translate on screen. You can always sit and watch Sean Connery in anything, even if he's not fully committed, just because he holds the screen so well. But I don't feel like kind of the energy of his earlier Bond work. And here... I don't think he's bad in Never Seen Ever Again. Like That's not something I hold against the movie. I think he's probably a little more engaged here than he was in Diamonds Are Forever. Diamonds Are Forever is a movie that's insane, and I enjoy it as this absolutely crazy hangout movie where nothing really makes sense, but I can't really regard it as a good movie. And I would say like his performance here, I know he really was annoyed at the uh, Eon productions which he felt uh, ripped him out of money so this was a little bit of a revenge tactic for him and he may have actually just been like i'm gonna try to do some good work here because i want to give them that extra jab back of i can you know i can be bond for this guy too um so i think he's fine if i'm to like you know hold this against the other performances it's probably a little more committed than um uh, diamonds are forever but i don't I don't know if I'd put it that much above You Only Live Twice, which is his other, you know, <laughs> slowing down role. Well, it it very much looks like in this he's he's having fun, like with I guess we're like with the character. It's a like I guess he wouldn't have done it if it wasn't a case of like, well, let's just have one last ride on the pony and like do you know what I mean drive it off of a 
of a was tower that, into Was the that city. a pun? Yeah, I was yeah, going to say. Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> Let's drive it off there. Yeah, yeah. And even, even like, the, I like the fact that the title of this film is a play on something he said, didn't he? He said, mm-hmm. like, never again. And then, obviously, the film ends with him, like, like that, that kind of question of never and, like, him just winking to the camera. So it kind of, I think, if you are unsure of the kind of, I don't know, almost like pastiche tone of the film, that, that ending very much like plays into that but is, is is that something that happens in bond films is there a lot of like fourth wall breaking or like looking directly at the camera it doesn't there's there's the odd moment where like i think of octopussy which was from that same year where his contact is playing the the bond theme on like a flute so like there's little moments like that not a lot of characters staring directly at the camera. No, that there's doesn't. The, there's the guy sweeping the floor in Diamonds Are Forever that's singing the Goldfinger theme. Yep, that <laughs> happens, yeah. Um, so, or is that Honor Majesties, I think, isn't it? Oh, you might be right. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, um, but yeah, there's little moments like that, but not as bang on as this one. And we should also just note, too, like Connery at this point in time is not in the best of career places. He's sort of at that moment where... Mm, he's kind of aged out as your kind of your vital leading man, and he hasn't quite been rediscovered as like the Hollywood legend that's going to work right to the end. And mm-hmm. that would happen four years later with um, The Untouchables, which he won an Oscar for. So mm-hmm. I think when he signed on to this, it was probably at least a little, I mean, financially, of course, he's going to sign on, but also just a little bit of, I'd like to be a lead in a movie that's going to be a hit. Yeah. I- yeah. And uh, yeah, you, you, your your question as well was like things that I liked, and, and just a couple of other things. I I think some of the quips are on point. I think one of the best lines in all of Bond is in this film, where um, Fat and Blush comes from the ocean. She goes, oh, "I'm all wet," and he goes, "Yeah, but my martini's still dry." And it's like, <laughs> yes, this is this is pure Bond. I like this stuff. And speaking of Fatima Blush, Barbara Carrera is fantastic. I could fawn over her all day and not just because she was in Condor Man. <laughs> she is amazing in this film. She is the pulse of yeah. this film. And it's a shame when she leaves. She leaves spectacularly. <laughs> but every scene she is in, she is chewing up to the nth degree and it works entirely. I yeah, mean, like, she is that, uh... insane in this movie. Like, I, I feel like <laughs> I don't even know if I can say she's great so much as she's this force of energy that is like blowing in from an entirely different movie. I, I love that early scene when she's talking to Jack and saying, like, is it like, you, like some of the lines as well are, are clearly ADR'd in this film. And mm. there's that one of her like being like, oh, nurse will give you your medicine, baby. And stuff like that. And she has she's got this kind of like, I don't. She's menacing throughout it. That kind of like final confrontation. I love it that she's got such an eat. Like her character, like a motivation is like I am number one, and like her kind of sticking point with Bond is like for him to basically sign saying like I'm the best shag ever had, and like that feels like a kind of knowing joke to the audience. Obviously, James Bond is this, uh, you know, Lafario. And obviously her big thing is like, let let the world know that I was the best shag you ever had, James. Like it is kind of just before she's about to kill him. She's like, can you just can you just write write down on this piece of paper that I'm a yeah, that I was a good lay. 
It's, it's pure campy Bond. That is, yeah. uh, that's, that is exactly what that scene is. And I have to say, I mean, we interviewed Jeff Kane, who wrote Goldeneye, or at least a good portion of Goldeneye anyway. And we didn't ask him this question, but I have to imagine they were watching at, at least Fatima Blush when they wrote Xenia. Because Xenia Onotop feels like an evolution of this character, and they've taken a lot of notes. Yeah, I would say, like, I mean, Fiona Volpe from Thunderball is also, you know, obviously the character that this one is springing from. But I think the difference is that both Xenia and uh, Fiona Volpe, like, seem a little more hard-edged dangerous. Whereas, like, Fatima Blush is obviously very deadly, but, like, she is, like, a cartoon character in this movie. Like, her evil (laughs) is so outsized that you can't help but laugh. It's almost like... This is closer to what I think the movie perhaps should have tilted a little more towards, which is kind of a fun send up, almost like a, you know, Our Man Flint kind of take on Bond, where you're just like kind of playing with the tropes and pointing out kind of the absurdity of them, because that's what this character feels like. And I mean, there's even a moment where she's like just dancing down a stair, like a set of stairs, and you're like, this looks crazy. Like, I don't know what this actress is doing, but it's working. And her wardrobe is absolutely nuts in this movie. Um, so, and I think, you know, as Scott said earlier, when she leaves the movie, to me, that's where the energy really starts to sag. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love the kind of like shots we get of her. There's that moment when Domino goes into like the arcade hall that they've established in this kind of manor house. And we get that shot of Fatima, like in the kind of reflection of the door and stuff like that. And she was, I don't know, she's almost like, yeah, she's almost like something you would like a character out of like a she's playing she's play it like she's like a Hitchcock film or something like that. She's got like that energy of like really like I don't know like like the same thing that Nicolas Cage is like uh, accused of a lot of the time, just like really like chewing it up and kind of almost using stuff like fr- uh, German expressionism to just be like I'm going to be this force of nature in the film and like yeah I I, I love it like um, that that moment when he's chasing her out of the apartment once she's like. She she drowned the woman in the waterbed and stuff like that and like I think mm. yeah I think she's kind of she's kind of cackling on her way out and it's like surely if you were like a deadly assassin you'd just creep out she's like gonna clip clop my heels and kind of run out like cackling like a witch and it, it leads to that kind of great chase sequence with the conveniently delivered motorbike and her uh, sex scene with Bond is so weird <laughs> it is so <laughs> weird. <laughs> We heard a little bit of that in the trailer at the start as well. That was, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, they, she has nothing but nice things to say about Connery, though, if you read any interviews with her, funnily enough. Nice. Nice, so, nice so they got on. Is this particularly a, a shag heavy, uh, Bond film, or is this, is this, is this light for, for James Bond bedding women? Um, I think this is about on par with the era. Um, although you it's know, usually three. It's usually three in these Bond films at this era. There's one he ends up with, one he starts the film with, and there'll be one in the middle somewhere. Yeah, so this is about on par there. Um, although I think this one is maybe a little more suggestive than the other ones. Like with, uh, say, the Moors or even the earlier Conneries, kind of like sex happens before and after the fade to black. Whereas, like this one kind of will prolong the bedroom activity more where you see him and Fatima and they're sliding back and forth 
on the ship. Like it feels again, it's kind of a little more the American take on it. I feel like where they're just like, mm-hmm. let's show as much as we can for that PG rating. That 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 scene where like where they're having sex, Fatima and, and Bond, and uh, she she like leans backwards and then gets like pulled back in again. That that just gives me real like hot shots vibe. That's just that's just farcical. <laughs> I love it. It's great. But this, this is this is what I mean. It's campy, indulgent fun, which I think Bond can be and and probably yeah. still should be in certain ways. And I think this is this is my favorite Bond doing the weirdest type of Bond film he could, but making it work. Because I think he tried to do this. Connery, I should say, tried to make this with diamonds. He made a campy comedy film, and it didn't work. This works. Doesn't diamonds work? Yeah. <laughs> it does not work. Come I, on now. It works at something. <laughs> Make it, no, no, Cam, stop it. No. Like, I would totally rather watch diamonds than never say never again. So for me, shut like, up, Cam. Shut up, Cam. <laughs> if I'm like a mediator here. <laughs> if I'm going to watch campy Connery Bond, I'm going diamonds are forever over. You've, you've been shooting you've been shooting heroin or whatever it is before this chat yeah let, let, let's look at one of your eyes have you been have you been taken in have you been taken in by specter cam like what, what's, your eyes open them up what's nursey been feeding you eh <laughs> so should we yeah before we kind of get on to some of the animal cruelty in this and how the film kind of wraps up um what do you think of the kind of, I guess in a lot of other Bond films, it would be like a poker match, but the kind of letting the audience know we're in the 80s, baby, with this kind of uh, sequence of them playing, I don't know, what is it, like a kind of like asteroids on crack, basically, like well, that, it's, that him, and, him and Largo play. It's called Domination. Um, <laughs> and, uh, well, any child of the 80s, remembers growing up and watching your friends play like nes or what have mm-hmm. you um it's never fun and i feel that way about this sequence watching bond and largo <laughs> play this video game wears out its welcome real quick <laughs> i will I, I i agree for once i i'm gonna put a, a down mark on this film but what i will say as I think it's shot really interestingly. Like I like the way they framed it and the way they designed the game. So like the heads of both Largo and Bond are sort of framed by the video yeah. game. And so it's not just like it's not just a guy facing into an arcade stand. Like you can't really yes. see it. And it, there's like a logistics how it's shot. And I think the actual design of the game is quite wonderful for 1983. Yeah, and they even work in like a little gun barrel too. Very subtle. Yeah. Like enough that they subtle. can sneak it by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I, I, I think to that point, though, we were talking about earlier with, like, Bond being a bit over the hill. It feels like, like I, I'm not sure if I quite buy, like, a 52-year-old being shit hot at an arcade game. Like, especially if it's something they didn't grow up on. Do you know what I mean? Like, nowadays, 52-year-olds, like, schooling it at Time Crisis in, a, in an arcade, I'd be like, yeah, that's cool, man. You, you, grew, up, you grew up in the like, era of arcades. Whereas this, I'm a bit like, that should have been like a bit of a sticking point of like, oh, this could be his downfall because like he doesn't quite understand that world. This is something from the new world and he's from the old world somewhat. Well, logically, he didn't need to win. He, he, he wins <laughs> and says, I'll take a dance. Well, he could just say as a commiseration, could I have a dance? And then yes. it's <laughs> the same thing. It doesn't really matter. There was no need for him to best Largo in that scene because Largo 
Didn't he design this game? Isn't this his game? It is, yes. But he is 007. I would say it's more about just like ego. Is like he wants to kind of prod the fragile eagle uh, ego of Largo, and um, I don't know he he accomplishes that. I do like. There's a moment though where uh, Claus Maria Brandar, when he's like zapped, like like swings his both his hands up and looks like has this like this feral look on his face. That's crazy. That is like the choice of an actor who's a little weird, just going kind of crazy in that moment. It's very strange. So let yeah, let's kind of talk about the let's talk about the animals. Let's talk about the 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 the, the, the terrible treatment of animals in this film. Scott, you, you you kind of wanted to talk about that, or t- tell us about what happens for some of the animals in this movie. Well, um, at least two to to my memory, although there's probably more that were harmed in the making of this film. Um, to start off with, a snake is used and thrown into a car that then crashed into a wall. I have to believe there was no snake in the crashing car. But it's alluded to that there was, which is kind of cruel. But it is done by a villain, so we can dismiss it. But later, <laughs> once, once the film has lost all energy, and we're in, the, <laughs> we're in the back end now, and it hasn't got a clue how to resolve itself, Bond and Domino are trapped in a castle in Palmyra. And somehow, for some reason, they're trying to sell off Domino. I don't know why. And then Bond rescues them both on a horse and is being chased around a castle on a horse, which is kind of funny. Like, True Lies did yeah. it 10 years later in a shopping mall, and it looked quite fun uh, with Arnie riding the horse. Didn't, but then Arnie stopped at the precipice of the shopping mall and didn't uh-huh. ride it off. Unfortunately, Bond rides the horse off the side of a massive cliff into the ocean, and you see it. Now, in the UK DVD version, they've actually cut it, funnily enough, to get round the censors. But if you get the Blu-ray version or you get um, an American version, the full horse scene is there and you get to see that horse plummeting down. Yeah. To it. Apparently, it survived. Apparently, it survived. Wait, Apparently. yeah, there is Hold a on. shot. They, 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 they include a shot of the horse like swimming afterwards, but like there's some, there's some awful like green screen as well isn't there or like there's that yeah. close-up of sean connery and kim basing and go like whoa like in the air and we kind of get the superimposed ho- them and the horse falling through the air yeah like the the shot of the thing falling is incredibly fake looking that looks almost like animated yes. onto the screen so i and when it shows them hitting the water that was a real horse i just assumed it was like a fake horse they dropped in the water real horse you know what i mean i've seen movies from you know, decades earlier where they would just basically hang a horse by a crane and just drop it on cue to go off cliffs and stuff. This was definitely something of a practice at this point in time, probably near the end of that, I would think, too. I don't think they were doing that to horses uh, going into the preceding, you know, years and decades. Um, Yeah, that's unfortunate. Although I am surprised, though, with animal cruelty in this movie. I thought you were going to mention the sharks, which was really shady, what they were doing with the, um, the tiger sharks in this movie. Well, I read something, but Cam, you are our resident shark expert here on Spy Hards. Uh, Jaws is your favorite film, and you're currently sitting in front of a Jaws poster. So why don't you tell everyone about the tiger sharks? So I was watching Never Say Never Again the other night, and I'm watching this tiger shark scene, and I'm like really impressed by it. The whole moment where you know Bond is being pursued by these radio-controlled sharks that are chasing his signal. Uh-huh. I'm like, this is actually really cool. These sharks are clearly real. Wait a second. 
How did they do this? How is this shark like pursuing an actor down a hallway? This doesn't make any sense. This is clearly a real shark. Um, and so I looked it up and the animal wranglers who dealt with the sharks said this was one of the toughest shoots they ever did in their lives and incredibly dangerous. And basically what they would do was hold the sharks down so they couldn't move and basically run them low on oxygen. And so they were basically like dopey in the head from lack of oxygen. And then they would basically just like push them through the water at actors. And uh, one of them at one point got spastic and was freaking out. And that's probably that shot where it really starts thrashing around in the room and it was knocking the stuntmen around. But uh, yeah, they were basically just holding these sharks until they were oxygen deprived and then using them while they were docile. Silence. (laughs) That's mental. That is like... Horrifying. Horrifying, isn't it? Yeah, and you know what? And also... when. When we covered Thunderball, which also has a lot of sharks, and that one, they were just running cables through the shark's fins, and so they couldn't turn, and basically throwing them back and forth. So, yeah, shark treatment in uh, Bond movies of the past is uh, pretty bad, and I often get frustrated when I watch modern Bond films, for example, Skyfall, and I see CG Komodo dragons, but at the same time, you kind of you do the research and you understand why you're less likely nowadays to see real threatening animals in these movies. Yeah. That, that's, There's, just, just the inclusion of animals in this as well. Like uh, <laughs> the, the way that they have that room full of vultures and I, they obviously, they obviously were real and you just get that squawk from them all the time. And it's just like, <laughs> I don't know, it's really like, off-putting in the like i don't know i don't like again it's a lack of score as well that is one thing i have like throughout this film it's like it's not a lot of music in this it's like we've not got we've not got license to the to the kind of bond theme and stuff like that so we'll just we'll just not have music at all i i have no doubt that if they had somehow got the rights to the bond music or or somehow got john barry in to make something I think this would probably bump up at least one mark in everyone's textbooks because, well, I mean, the guy's a genius. But like, even the intro, instead of having Never's Never Again playing, you could have just had the Bond theme playing. Mm-hmm. That would have been, it's got a sort of a pulse to it. Um, that would have been fine. But yeah, it, it, there's several sequences here. Actually, the one in Shrublands earlier on, actually, as well, was just completely devoid of life. Could have just done with a really pacey John Barry score, which I think would have been nice. But yeah, I mean, just just speaking about the just to sort of t- touch on the sharks really quickly as well. Bond, I mean, if you go back to Fleming, these books were written as travelogues. They were like about discovering cultures around the world and, and different things. And like you read like Doctor No, and Bond fights a giant octopus or a giant squid or something like that. Like the books get ridiculous. So. This is like a toned-down version. So I understand why they use the animals. I get it. But it is a real shame when you dig into... I think it's more of a Hollywood problem than Bond. But yes, uh, you know, their treatment of animals, because it, it isn't great. And well, yeah, I actually wish, honestly... I mean, look, we can't change the way they were treating animals in these days. That's not going to... Uh, you know, there's nothing we can do. Um, I kind of wish they'd done more with the vultures in this movie, because... If you're making this movie and it's like, okay, we want to give the audience something they haven't seen in a movie they've seen before. <laughs> like, this is a remake. I would have made, like, the vultures more of a threat in that sequence where he's chained up. Like, I don't know, have the villain put some sort of boot on him or something that the vultures are going to eat off. It would just, like, increase the da- the danger level versus yes. just having him stand there 
you know, and they could have easily made um, fake vulture heads to be like pecking at him or something. Yeah. Well, that 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 whole the whole moment, the whole kind of tail end of this film, there were moments I like would, I don't know, just go to like drink my water or something, and I would turn around. It'd be like, oh, all of a sudden Bond's doing this now. Do you know what I mean? It's like all of a sudden he's got a jetpack out of nowhere, or all of a sudden he's he he's in a he's in a cave, like these ruins that have come out of nowhere. That they're kind of they've got these nu- they've got this nuclear warhead, and all of a sudden he's repelling from a helicopter, and he's dropped in a well, and it's it is is quite I don't know discombobulating. Like the kind of latter stages of this is like let's throw in everything and the kitchen sink and hope that something sticks right it's definitely a kitchen sink thing now i kevin mcclory all hail kevin mcclory has a massive hard-on for underwater sequences uh as does cam but that's a different story uh listen to our thunderball review if you want to hear more about that <laughs> but yeah so they had to get those sequences in because they're in the book they have to have the underwater sequences. It's like a thing with Thunderball. You have to waste time underwater. And underwater fight sequences look awful, by the way. I don't think I've ever seen it done particularly well. Well, it's tough. It's, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's easy. I just, why well, do it? Well, because I, I looked at the time, like, I was, I was kind of like, oh, how much time have I got left on this film? And it was like eight minutes. And I was like, oh, this is like the final chase is just bond swimming through look do you know what I mean like a a, a swim yeah, a swim chase there's nothing kind of cinematic and thrilling about that it's kind of like it's a it's boring like do you know what I mean like someone chasing someone underwater is quite is quite dull to watch well it, it gets even worse you go further back in that sequence with the jetpack that you mentioned mm-hmm. now that's obviously a nod to thunderball right yeah, the opening of Thunderball where he's in the jetpack, yeah. Yeah, and that's obviously like, a, I don't know if that's in the book. I've never read the book of Thunderball. I'm, f- I'm sorry, listeners. But it, that feels like a massive jab at Eon at that point. Like mm-hmm. putting Connery back on a jetpack. Well, it's not even a jetpack this time. It's like a jet stand or yeah. a jet pla- <laughs> Thing. platform. Yeah, <laughs> and him and Felix Leiter like bobbing over. It's It's ludicrous when you think about it because they... They take these experimental jetpacks from the boat to the shore and then go back in the water. Yeah, I don't, I don't get you, it. You just think, just swim, boys. Just yeah. well, as, a, as a, a swimming pun, I suppose. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, it was literally just to have the sequence of Sean Connery on a jetpack. And that, that's just silly. But yeah, and then you get to like him and, and Bernie Casey running through the most bland looking cave set you've uh-huh. ever seen. It looks, I mean, for UK listeners, it looks like something out of the Crystal Maze. <laughs> or, it's like, it's yeah. like the, the Aztec Zone or something like that, yeah. You can also compare it to all those cave sets you would see on Star Trek The Next Generation back in the 80s and 90s, where they would go to the same cave every third or fourth episode. Or just like when you're at an amusement park, do you know what I mean? You're at a theme park and it's kind of like, oh, this ride's, I don't know, like, it's, uh, yeah, it's like the mummy ride. We're gonna We're gonna, we're gonna make the kind of, the walkthrough look a bit like a cave and it's like nah we can tell this is like uh perspex and kind of like jimmy you know I like just a bit of rough plastic like you're not fooling anyone and that's definitely what this that that sequence looks like and it's i just it's the geography of it all as well like i was just like i'm not like 
I can't, I can't almost like follow this in a weird way. It's like, I don't know. It, like it, it just, yeah, the wheels fall off massively. I found like when we get to the end of the film. And when you watch Thunderball, that one has this big iconic and people really vary on how much they enjoy it. But battle between um, the military and Spectre forces underwater. And, you know, they're punching, kicking. They have knife fights. There's all these various little uh, moments of action throughout that big finale. And it's very expensive looking. It is visually pretty impressive just in terms of what they're staging with a large number of stuntmen. But it's also underwater, and it's not necessarily paced in a way that modern viewers enjoy. And so I think when they were making this remake, they're like, we can't replicate that. This is like almost 20 years later. An 80s audience doesn't want to watch a extended underwater fight. What do we do? Well, they came up with this cave concept and the rocket pad that looks like it's from a G.I. Joe cartoon or something. And it was basically just like ways to get around a finale that wouldn't be satisfying anymore. Yeah. But then failed ultimately, right? As I said, like the main chase at the end of this is just a guy swimming after another guy. And then out of nowhere, Domino just appears to like, that that was something I was like, she was like, almost like hold up on the boat. And now all of a sudden she's kind of on the front line with a harpoon just because there's that throwaway line like is it uh, bond says to her like i'm sure i'm sure you want him more than i do so it's like ah we're gonna we're gonna pay off that line from like 20 minutes earlier by just having a appear from nowhere to to harpoon him in the chest well it's also from i guess probably the book or certainly at least the original film where domino gets her revenge on largo by shooting him with a harpoon but this is on a boat not underwater and their relationship is very different in the film and it it actually makes sense for her to kill him and it is actually a nice payoff for the character whereas here it just feels like you had to have domino kill largo because that's what the story is and you couldn't you couldn't stray from that so maybe that was just to do with the restrictions and she also like teleports underwater like there's no reason for her to be there whereas in the original it, it makes complete sense why she's geographically located on that boat at that specific time well yeah the character has no agency and actual stuff to do so it's just like as you said it's like we've got this tick box exercise of she has to kill largo it's kind of a uh an emotional payoff that we haven't really set up because their their relationship is uh not as fleshed out as as you guys have said it is in fundable so it just does it doesn't feel like the payoff it's uh kind of meant to be for the audience well let me let me ask you a question here we've we've been talking about this film you haven't got the you haven't got the whole bond catalog in your brain like i seem to or cam definitely does although i've only seen some of them once um what do you think of this film comparative to the one some bonds that you have seen where where would you put this what what's your take on it does this make you want to go back and watch more 80s bond films well it it definitely makes me want to go watch fundable i'm definitely gonna like i want to dive into the the, the connery ones oh dive that. dive <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i'm gonna, gonna dive head first into that that overlong fight sequence of fundable i'll definitely be checking it does it does make me want to like because I think I could watch this film 
for what it is as well as a product of its time and like cam said it is it is somewhat of a cute like um, uh, i love i love a good curio and something that i don't know is playing in the sandbox of this massive franchise but is out of it is is a weird thing and i think like the the idea that it has to tickle these boxes but like can't tick some boxes because of legal issues and stuff like that it it definitely if this is a pale imitation of what bond is as many people kind of do you know what I mean like see this as like the bastard child of the of the of the bond films or like many don't even consider it a bond film at all it definitely makes me feel like oh yeah i'm definitely going to go check out those films and yeah i always like to look at films like i said as products of their time so i'm not that there is obviously sticking issues in this film like i guess something we didn't touch on is like this horrible portrayal of like anyone who isn't white pretty much in this mm-hmm. film Do you know what i mean like when we get to north africa all of the men are there kind of like Ugh, you, like do you know what I mean like with their money to buy to buy domino and stuff like that and it's like could could that like the com and they're the ones who are getting killed all of a sudden it's not just Largo's men. It's just all of a sudden it's these North African natives who are getting gunned down by the the, the military when they turn up with their like submarine and like just do you know what I mean like shooting them all and stuff like that. So yeah, there is issues and stuff like that, but uh, I don't know. It, yeah, it makes me especially if there's camp fun Bond films. I definitely like to check out those ones and definitely check out that, that original Connery run. It is interesting, I, though, that they do cast a person of color as Felix Leiter, which was something that would come yeah. much later with the official series with Jeffrey Wright in Casino Royale. And, like, as much as I have a lot of issues with this movie, and, you know, you mentioned the North Africa scene with Kim Basinger, that's probably the lowest moment of the whole movie. It's pretty ugly. But, like, um, in terms of Felix Leiters in the history of Bond, they're real up and down. Like they're often just like non-characters. And I actually think Bernie Casey is a checkbox, you know, that in terms of the things I really like in the movie, you know, I can say Fatima Blush really works. And I think Bernie Casey really works as Felix Leiter. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, is there any, is there any final notes on the film? Any, any, anything that we've missed, whether it's, I don't know i guess a moment i particularly enjoyed was bond having his suitcase of kind of uh treats when he's when he's uh when he's at his spa retreat and he's got what is it caviar and <laughs> and vodka I thought, I thought that was a that was a funny little touch but yeah is there anything we've missed guys there is one actually which is the rowan atkinson character of nigel small faucet <laughs> who shows up um where do you guys come down on that character First I am on board. <laughs> I I love a nasally whiny white guy because that's basically me. It it does. I'm I'm trying to think where Ron Atkinson would have been in his career. Oh sure. Time. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, with hello. Your sound like completely went there. I think you yeah. were talking, but neither Cam nor I could hear you. I think. Uh, all I said was, "Where was Ron Atkinson?" I think it's at gone his, again. At, yeah, in his career at this point, Tron. Yeah, oh, bloody hell! Hello, 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 hello. Hey. We can hear you. I think. Hello. 
Let's just let it catch up for a minute. Yeah. It's okay. I just about. I'll just keep speaking until. Hello. 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 Can you you hear me? We can hear you. Yeah, I can hear you both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, you're coming back now. Your your camera was just frozen there for an extended section. Oh. Is that the uh, the Wi-Fi in the garden? Yes, I've got like a Wi-Fi extender. Oh. So uh, sometimes it gets a bit like, a bit, a bit, a bit, mm. a bit funny. Um, yeah, all I mentioned was where was Rowan Atkinson in his career at this point, just to kind of put it, yeah, it's like, yeah, well, well, yeah where, where, where was he? What was he kind of, was this not the nine o'clock news era? It's pretty early in his career, real early, I think. I, I think I, I'm having vague memories. It might have been his first major movie role. Well, because he did Hot Shots Part Deux later in the 80s. That's 90s, um, early 90s. Oh, is it 90s? Okay, yeah. my bad. Uh, I don't know where we are with Blackadder in the UK at this point. Uh, I know that did start in the 80s, but I don't know where it ended. Uh, well, I, I mean, just for my like final note, I hadn't really asked. And this was just more of a question because I don't know. Can anyone here tell me what a free radical actually is? No. I Googled no. it and I still didn't understand. <laughs> I yeah, I'll just go back to the new radicals then as Cam said earlier. You got the music I will also your... argue I've got the <laughs> one dance left. Uh I will also argue that it that is the best song of the nineties. Oh. Yep. I did Ooh. I did buy the C D, to be fair. Uh, yeah, it is it is is an absolute banger. Like you got "Kiss from a Rose," that's pretty pretty good. No, "Wanna Be" by Spice. No, "Wanna Be" no. by Spice Girls is up there. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, Brian Adams. Um, uh, Robin Hood, Men in Tights. So Prince of Thieves. Prince of Thieves. Yeah. Where, yeah. Uh, whatever the name of that song is, and the Aerosmith song. Uh, Don't want to miss a thing. From yeah. Oh hell no. No, 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 no. I'll take the Titanic song over that one. You're very far from wherever we are. I'm right Canadian. <laughs> I've got to support the pride of Canada. <laughs> Is there yeah, any points that you that, that you that you wanted to touch on? You obviously mentioned Rowan Atkinson, Cam. Is there anything else that you would like to touch upon? Um, I'm just looking here. Um, I think there's some odd choices. Like they changed the name of Domino. Like her in, in the uh, original film, it's Domino Derval, and here they change it to Patachi. I'm like, mm. okay. Um, don't really understand <laughs> that. It it feels like a change for change's sake. Um, I think though, like I don't know that there's a lot that stands out. I would say like. I think, and again, this is a uh, <laughs> dubious point to make. I think in some of the other Bond films, some of the secondary love interests or third love interests, they give them a little more personality or a little more memorable. Whereas in this movie, a lot of them feel very interchangeable. Like they don't really have even like a personality point that you can say, oh, mm-hmm. I know that character. Here, I'm like, I, I, I don't know. Who, like there's the, like, the nurse at the, at the uh, spa. And then there's like the woman who's like a fisher you know who's like on a boat i'm like i yeah. i don't even know these characters names it, all, yeah all, all of the like the the woman who's fishing it's just to kind of like pay off that like a joke but an extended gag isn't it of like her saying i'll catch you later and then after he's kind of escaped the 
the sharks you kind of like i i i have a real big question of like how could he have seen that hook from like having like do you know what i mean like had that tussle with some sharks and he manages to see a, a, a tiny a tiny fish hook at the middle of nowhere and he knows oh yeah i'll come up here and like uh do you know what I mean? just 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 to pay off that gag being like oh yeah so that i'll cut you later uh yeah my sean connery's not the best <laughs> and just one other point maybe my, the last point i have in, in terms of the movie that we haven't mentioned which is it was directed by Irvin Kirshner, who directed yes. The Empire Strikes Back. I am fascinated by the career of Irvin Kirshner because, like, you look at The Empire Strikes Back, that's like one of the all time great blockbusters. And incredible character dynamics in that movie just pulled off seamlessly throughout. Like, that entire movie, whether it's balancing its effects, its humor, everything, it's just kind of a perfect movie. And, like, I would question because like Irvin Kirshner would go on to do movies like RoboCop 2 and this. And I'm like, I I don't understand how the same man made those movies. Did George Lucas really just call all the shots on Empire? But by all Mm -hmm. accounts, that was not the case. Lucas has always said he was way too busy dealing with the financials of Lucasfilm to even focus that much on Empire. So like, what was the career of Irvin Kirshner? I just genuinely don't understand how you can go from Empire to like this. It is a it is a, it is a well, there's a yeah it's well not not that it's a bigger gap obviously before he does RoboCop too it's a, and obviously like beforehand I don't think I've, I I don't know a single title like oh I know I can see the titles but like I've never seen any film he directed before then like I know yeah in 1961 he was nominated for a Palme d'Or so like he obviously like I don't know he might, like Lucas must have saw something in him for him to direct. Empire Strikes Back, and then I don't know. Yeah, you would think he he would be a much more competent director than when you, especially if you watch this film. It's like it, that doesn't. It, I don't know. It doesn't look like it's made by the same person who made Empire Strikes Back at all. And well, he's got a he's got another spy film in his in his filmography called Spys uh, Spies. So I'm interested to see what that is because obviously we'll have to cover it along with Never's Never Again. Uh, quite soon, actually. But I, I, I'm also fascinated by the fact that he'd done a film called The Return of a Man Called Horse, which implies there was a film called A Man Called Horse. There is. And <laughs> I, well, I just love the idea that there's a film called that. It's really actually, The Man Called Horse is actually pretty good. It stars Richard Harris. And actually, my sister has a cat named after that movie, named Horse. Amazing. Well, Spies, looking at that right now, that looks really interesting. It looks like... Uh a Robert Altman film that's not directed by Robert Altman because it's what, Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould from from the poster looks like it's possibly... Elliot, Elliot Gould has got some fantastically weird 70s spy films. There's one, <laughs> there's one that I found recently called Who that like was lost to time and recently brought back by... <clears throat> recently brought back by a couple of like those production companies that like find old films and put them out on blu-ray yeah. and I've, I've purchased a copy because it looks so insane and the premise is elliot gould works for the cia and they've managed to they they managed to find a double agent come back from over the berlin wall who went to east berlin as a man and came back as a machine and he has <laughs> 
but he has the mind of the man. So he has to find out if that man is a double agent or not. And so he's like interrogating this guy as like a spy, but he's a robot and it's like 1972. And it's basically he has silver paint on his face and that makes him a robot. I can't Perfect. wait to talk about it on the show. Amazing. I, mean, I, will be, I will be waiting with bated breath for that one uh, <laughs> to, to, to hear you guys discuss that one. So um, yeah, I guess that, that kind of wraps us up on uh, never say never again and one of the things i like to do on this podcast as we wrap things up is uh yeah ask my guests did you manage to find any copla connections within this film were there people who worked on the film whether in front of or behind the camera who have worked with the coplas elsewhere um, well, i'd be i'd be surprised if sean connery didn't have a connection somewhere else he's got one he's got one and it is it is the rock right yeah 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 that's that and that like from my digging that's the only one i could find obviously jack schwartzman and stuff elsewhere but he's the kind of focus of this episode anyway but yeah max sean max von sidan must have something because he's got such a diverse filmography i'm sure he's brushed to past them never never in one of their films no no I, i guess like uh in 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 the early 70s he picked uh, Billy Friedkin as his man instead of Coppola. I'm kind of shocked that Pat Roach doesn't have anything. But uh, no, I don't see anything obvious that jumps out at me. Huh. Yeah. It's, well, it's, once you make Nevis Never Again, like maybe the family was like, this is the pinnacle. Where do we go from here? <laughs> they, they've done Bond now. I, I imagine it was like quite, quite fun for John Schwartzman to work on The Rock, considering like this would have been like, uh, yeah, I'd imagine Jack Schwartzman probably would have loved the idea that he got to produce a Bond film. And then obviously uh, he tragically passed away at the end of the 80s. So for his son then to, in the 90s, kind of like you said, make what a lot of people see as like a kind of retired Bond, one last hurrah film for that, 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 that character in a way. Do you know what I mean? To make that film must have been a, an absolute, like delight and you could only imagine they would have probably shared stories of never say never again and stuff like that and the good old days yeah 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 yeah. i would have to imagine that at some point kim basiner like maybe was up for something that was a coppola film or a nicholas cage film just given like it's kind of like all actors who are working in that specific time period i'm sure she probably at some point was testing for something that maybe was going to star Nick Cage or did star Nick Cage. Like it just feels like that would have happened at some point. Yeah, it, I guess there's probably a lot of like near misses. And Kim Basinger again's got like an interesting career. Like she kind of goes quite quiet in the '90s. Like in kind of she's not in as big a stuff as. Do you know what I mean? Like especially in the later '90s. And it, yeah, there's yeah she, they, they they she never crossed paths with the Copelands, which I found. I found, I found quite, uh, quite bizarre. Well, um, let's score this film. And the way we rate films on this podcast, I ask my guests, uh, what would be the perfect wine pairing for this film? You can bend the rules if you want to bend the rules, but I, I, I want to know, yeah, what, what, what wine would you pair with uh, Never Say Never Again? I, I'm also, I want Cam to go first because I know what his answer is already. Um. Well, I don't drink, so I'm the worst person to give wine recommendations. So my answer is going to be wine gums, the candy, because this is just <laughs> junk food. <laughs> um, 
I am going to go. I mean, I don't rate this as a good spy film. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say if it made the knock list or not. I'll save that for our review, although I'm sure listening to us for the last hour and a half, you might get a sense if it's making the list of the best spy <laughs> movies of all time. But have you guys ever had wine? Well, Cam, no. But have you ever had wine from a box? Yes. This is a box of wine. Yes. Uh, a goon, if you're from Australia, they love calling it that. So this is a goon of wine. It could be the really cheap, you know, Sauvignon Blanc that you get from Tesco. Box of wine for me. I, I, I've got to agree with you there, which leads me on to my, my next question is, uh, what shelf are we going for? Is this bottom, middle or top shelf wine? AKA, is the film any good? I'm going to come in slightly controversial on this one. Because I think by just being a Bond film, having Sean Connery in it and, and, and some of the good stuff this film has, it's already higher up than some spy films out there. So I don't know if this is making the bottom shelf of anything. Mm-hmm. It's not also making the top shelf of anything. So this is very much a middle of the road. Like a, maybe the box is 15 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. What about yourself, Cam? What are you, what, what, what are you saying? Well, okay. So in my comparison to wine gums, this is the uh, wine gum rack right at the till, where you're standing there and you see them. You know you shouldn't buy them. You know, like uh-huh. I, I could get something better for dessert tonight. I don't need wine gums, but you're gonna buy them anyway, and you don't know why, and you're gonna eat them. You're probably not gonna feel that great after you've eaten them, but you'll probably do it again. Yeah, it's this is definitely like if if the Eon films are like a natural wine, like if you drink a bottle of red, like you're gonna have nice antioxidants in there. You're not gonna have too much of a headache. Whereas this one, I think, is kind of on the your cheaper scale. It's very much like the middle middle shelf, and it's you're gonna be waking up in the morning going, "Oh, what what did I do last night? Like what happened? Like that." That's kind of like with this film, you're left a bit confused and a bit of a headache as to what actually went on with it. Let's be honest, whatever we pick is going to be riddled with free radicals. <laughs> of course, of course, of course, yeah. We're going to need an enema to get rid of the, to get yes. rid of the remnants of this film. Um, so that out of the way, um, let me ask you, based on this film alone, are the Coplas the greatest film family of all time? No. Um, like, uh, boy, like I'm, now I'm like... The Fondas are pretty great. Um, God, on that's... this film alone. Cam. On this film alone, Cam. Oh, on this film well, alone. It... No. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that you were pondering it, I was scratching my head. Like, why were you pondering this? I was just straight no. Oh Lord. Listen to the question, Cam. <laughs> oh, it's so embarrassing. And let, let I'm gonna go some wine teams. <laughs> Let me ask you these two final wrap-up questions. The first one being. Which Coppola family member would you keep, but in doing so, you get rid of the entire filmographies, the rest of the family? Let's start with you, Scott. I mean, based on my experience with the family, it's probably Nicolas Cage. So you're wiping out The Rock? Or you're keeping, you're keeping Nick Cage? I'm keeping The Rock. I'm keeping Nick Cage yeah. and everything else goes. So we're losing The Godfather. We're losing Lost in Translation. You know, all that sort of stuff. It's gone. Oh, my God. God, this is a real tough one for me because it's like I love Nick Cage so much and that I want his filmography, but then I'm wiping out like The Godfather, The Conversation, 
Jack, yeah, you know, we can get rid of Jack, but um, this is really tough. I'm going to say I have a DVD shelf, Blu-ray shelf, whatever, dedicated to the films of Nick Cage. I need that shelf, so I got to go with Nick Cage. Perfect, perfect. Uh, I, I always like to tell people there is like a slight cheat code in regards to, I guess, if you keep Coppola, you keep a couple of Nick Cage films, but I'd always say, that, I don't know, he's cast by, he cast someone else. Ethan Hawke had the career that Nicolas Cage had in this in this alternative reality without, without Nicolas Cage. But yeah, uh, men after my own heart keeping Nicolas Cage. You can very much stay. You're, you're in the bosom of the Coppola family for me, guys. Uh, so let, let, let me ask you both uh, before I let you go. What does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? Don't watch Never mm. Seen Ever Again. <laughs> I'll one-up you. It slowly builds. Never, never say never again. Never, never say never again. Never. And that conversation goes on for a while until Scarlett Johansson gets bored and walks off. <laughs> Amazing. So let us know, guys, where can we find Spy Hards? Where can we find you guys if you want to keep up to date with everything you're doing with the podcast or anything else? Well, speaking of cheat codes, uh, the easiest thing is wherever you're listening to this podcast, you can find us too. So just type in Spy Hards, S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, and we'll pop up. Uh, and as for spies, we're exceedingly easy to find on social media because we're also at Spy Hards everywhere, S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and apparently TikTok. <laughs> Amazing. Well, guys, thank you so much in coming and making some Coppola connections with me. No, thank you. This was a pleasure. Never say never again. Never? Never say never again. Wink. A massive thank you once again to Cam and Scott for joining me for this conversation. And if you're not checking out their podcast, what you're doing with your bloody life, go check out Spy Hards right now. And a massive thank you to all of you guys for listening. And if you're a James Bond pedant and you've made it to this point and you've got some problems with anything that was said on this podcast, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can do so on all the social media platforms. So that is Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox, all at Caged In Pod. If you really want to send me some juicy death threats, or I don't know what you what you Bond acolytes do, Bond boys uh, do, you can head on over and drop me an email, which is CagedInPod at gmail.com. Obviously, the death threats. I jest. I don't want any death threats, uh, and I don't want to. I don't want to. Uh, I don't know, uh, encourage any toxic fandom either. If you're a toxic fan, if uh, you got annoyed by anything in this episode and you feel the need to reach out on me on social media uh, in all caps, angry message, you probably are a toxic fan. I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> As for next week on this here, dear podcast, hopefully um, 
any 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 James Bond fans will be will be joining us next week as we well before we get to next week actually uh, this Friday sees the release of the unbearable weight of a massive talent and uh, those of you who do follow me on social media may have seen some little clips that I got to talk to the director and co-writer Tom Gormican and yeah his uh, writing partner Kevin Etten to talk about that film I got, I got a lovely 20 minutes and I will be dropping that interview on Friday the same day as the release of the film I don't think there's anything in there as for spoilers and stuff like that and there may be some other stuff and uh yeah after that like next week's episode maybe a couple of connections one or may be something related to the unbearable weight of massive talent because i'm gonna warn you we're gonna be uh, <laughs> we're gonna be really ramping up the cage content in the next month or so because this is a big film and there's a lot to talk about so uh yeah there's uh, a conversation i've got with a fantastic uh, film journalist and editor of one of the biggest film magazines in the world. I'm sure you internet sleuths can figure out who that is. And uh, yeah, I've got the mega, mega uh, Cage podcast episode coming out that will blow your bloody socks off. This is the true multiverse of madness that nobody asked for but you will bloody want in your ear holes i'll tell you that for sure right now so if you've enjoyed this episode or any other bloody episode of the podcast and would like to support with some cash money you can do so by heading over to patreon.com forward slash caged in pod where you can get access to the sporadically released at the moment uh, movie brat bros where we're in our first season looking at the films of the one the only brian de palma and it's it's a lot of fun and you can access that series at a low low price of two pound fifty because apparently i've got very little self-worth when it comes to releasing additional content if you don't want to part with your cash that is absolutely fine you can support this podcast by heading over to apple podcast acast spotify wherever you can leave a rating and review and doing so always five stars please and make sure that you uh, write in the review section uh, what you think bill murray says to scarlett johansson at the end of lost in translation so as always guys i've been petrus pat Silvers, your guide through the crazy world of the copula family tree remember to keep it caged in and i'll catch you next time mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Copa Connections, a Town Limery, Maine, franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.